Morning, everyone. As Cammie said, my name is Jack, and uh, I am part of the teaching pillar. And because of that, David came to me a couple months ago, and he asked if I would be willing to share this morning, and I said that I would. And almost immediately, my mind went to uh, a conference that I'd gone to years ago. Uh, Some of you remember a, a group called the Promise Keepers. Uh, they used to have conferences around the world, and I went to one in Washington, D.C., and there was a black pastor from a big church in Los Angeles who spoke one evening, and he said this. He said that his role as a minister of the message and gospel of Jesus Christ was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, and that's what I hope to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts individually as you see fit. And may your word go forth and not return to you void, but may it accomplish in each individual heart here in a transformational way. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, an old friend of mine, a mentor, Uh, was out front of his house loading his pickup truck, getting ready to go to work. And while he was doing that, a young man across the street came out the front door of his house. And it's a young man he was developing a relationship with. And when Dave saw him, he stopped doing what he was doing, and he went across the street to engage the young man to say hi and ask him how he was doing. And when Dave did that, the young man looked at him and said, well, not very well. In fact... I am at this this very moment getting in my car to leave my wife. Dave looked at him and he asked him, or he said to him, "I, I think that is a really terrible decision. It's a terrible idea. And he asked the young man if he would be willing to come back across the street to sit down and to drink some coffee and talk about some of the problems that he and his wife were experiencing. And amazingly enough, the young man agreed. And so that's what they did. They went back across the road, they sat down, and they talked, and they drank coffee, and they talked. Later that day, when the young man left, instead of getting into his car to leave his wife, he walked back up the stairs into his house and began the process of reconciliation, began the process of restoring his relationship to his wife to begin to sit down and try and figure out how they had gotten to that point in their relationship. Reconciliation, according to one New Testament dictionary, means to change from enmity to friendship or to exchange enmity for friendship. It's when two parties come together to settle their differences or to reconcile, to exchange enmity, hostility, amnesty for friendship. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship to harmony. It is the bringing of accord out of discord. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, it becomes immediately obvious that reconciliation with sinful men and women is at the very heart of the gospel. You could even say at the very heart of God. 
The word for reconciliation in one form or another appears five times in our passage this morning. Five different times. When a word shows up that many times in a passage this small, we would do well to pay attention. From this passage, there are four important aspects I want us to look at when God reconciles an individual to himself. In verse 17, we see the power of reconciliation. That is the new creation. In verses 18 and 19, we see the participants of reconciliation. Who are the participants in the process? Paul writes, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. In verse 20, the proclamation of reconciliation. We become the ambassadors of God to the unbelieving world once we become reconciled to God. He has given us a message to share. And in verse 21, the price of reconciliation, the one who knew no sin. What price did God pay for our reconciliation? In verse 17, Paul confronts us with the power of reconciliation. He writes, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Paul says to be in Christ. And by that, I understand it to mean someone who has personally trusted Christ to be their savior. To be in Christ is to be a new creation. The idea is that of tearing down an old, worn out, dilapidated, useless building and in its place, erecting from the foundation up at something new. But what does that mean for us as individuals? What is the old that has passed and what is the new that has come in relation to you and me as individual believers in Christ? The word for old found in the Greek text is archaea. And from it, we get the obvious words archive and archaic. The principle is that when an individual is reconciled, reconciled to God through faith in Christ, the old is done away with. Those old, out of place, outdated actions, attributes, thoughts, those things that alienated us from God have been replaced with a whole new set of priorities, characteristics that now are to control our lives. The ways in which we lived our lives before being in Christ, the old ways may have suited us well then, but they don't suit us anymore. One writer put it this way, when a person becomes a Christian, he or she experiences a total restructuring of life that alters its whole fabric, the way we think, feeling, willing, and acting. Anyone who is in Christ is under new management and has altered priorities. Your old self has been torn down and in its place, a whole new you has been erected. One of the greatest compliments that a Christian can receive is for someone to come up to you and say to you, you know, you're not the person that you used to be. There's something new and different about you. That's because there is. The old is gone and the new has come. 
For the sake of full disclosure, I just want to mention that I have never seen the TV series, The Chosen. I've talked to multiple people who love it and, and give it high marks. I can't speak for it myself, but in the process of preparing for this morning, I came across this excerpt. Uh, just by way of background, in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it is said of Mary Magdalene that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. Seven demons that controlled how she thought, how she lived, how she acted. It goes like this. In the first episode of the television series, The Chosen, Mary Magdalene testifies to Jewish lead, religious leader Nicodemus of the absolute transformation she experienced of knowing Jesus Christ. She says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the only thing that happened in between was him. I mean, let's pause and just, just take that in for a second. Think about that. I was one way, and now I'm completely different, and the only thing that happened in between was him. The writer goes on to say that this dramatic scene was fashioned on, apostle, on the Apostle Paul's teaching that if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Another example of this startling transformation from old to new is the Apostle Paul himself. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, Saul, as he was known then, is a complete enemy of the church of God. He is committed to the destruction of the church. He holds coats while people stone Stephen. He goes from house to house, dragging newly committed believers out of their homes to stand trial for their faith. He was, as military people like to say, the tip of the sword when it comes to destroying the church. But in Acts chapter 9, Christ breaks into Saul's life in such a way that he is never the same again. So much so that people question if it's, if it's even really the same individual. The change was so dramatic. Dramatic whatever that word is, drastic. <laughs> Near the end of Acts chapter 9, it says this about Saul, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. And it goes on to say, Paul or Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And not long after that, Saul takes on a new name. Paul was one way, and now he is completely different. He is another way. And the only thing that happened in between was Christ. That's the power of reconciliation. When God restores an individual to a right relationship to himself, the old is gone. Behold, the new has come.
The word behold here is meant to draw our attention to the stark difference between the old and the new. It's the same word that John the Baptist uses when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the same word that the angels used on the night of Jesus' birth. Luke 2.10, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The reason that Paul can write, behold, all things become new is because he is a living testament of what happens to a person who in Christ is reconciled to God. That's the power of reconciliation. In verses 18 and 19, we see the participants of reconciliation. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. One of the first things that I want us to notice here is that reconciliation for God is a family affair. It goes on to say, all this is from God the Father, who through Christ the Son reconciled us to himself, after which he sent his Spirit to live within us, to empower us to live godly lives, to be the new creations that he wants us to be, that he created us to be. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, all we reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Becoming more like Christ on a daily basis through the power of God's Spirit within us goes hand in hand with the restored relationship to God our Father through Christ the Son. Note also that Paul is very precise when he says that it was God who reconciled us to himself. The word order is important here. God reconciled us to himself, not the other way around. We are the ones at fault. We are the ones who abandon our relationship to God. We turned our backs on him. We are the offending party in the relationship. One commentator put it this way, Paul is not speaking here of the overcoming of God's enmity towards humanity, but that of fallen humanity's enmity against God. Paul writes in Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In fact, if left to our own ways, to our own devices, we would get as far away from God as we could. And just take a look at the rest of the world. If we were honest with ourselves, left to our own choices, not a person in this room would seek after God. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 12. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. If reconciliation were left up to us, it would never happen. But thankfully, we have a God whose commitment to us is infinitely greater than our commitment to him. It is a reflection of his love. Romans chapter 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I find it interesting that Paul here uses the same participants of reconciliation as he does in 2 Corinthians. God, Christ, and us. At the beginning of verse 18, there's this little phrase, and all these things are from God. In that last little phrase from God, we learn that God is both the source and the initiator of reconciliation. God always takes the first step. And notice who the recipient of reconciliation is. God. He is reconciling us back to himself. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us back to himself and he did it out of love because he wants to fellowship with, fellowship with us and that only happens when that relationship is restored. God, Christ, us. Those are the participants of reconciliation. Verses 18 and 19 parallel each other in several instances, but their endings are distinct in a very important way. Verse 18 states that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and verse 19 says he entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. What Paul is pointing out is that without the message, there is no ministry. Verse 18 and 19 remind us that the focal point of the ministry of reconciliation is the message. And that message is the gospel. Paul reminds us that if we are not sharing the message, we are not fulfilling the ministry. At the end of verse 19, Paul says that we have been entrusted with the message. The word entrust or commit that Paul uses here is interesting because it comes from a word which, which means to set aside or to lie down. And at first you think, well, that's not what we should be doing. We should be carrying it, taking it up. And that's exactly what the implication of the word is. Lay aside not in a sense that we don't want it anymore, so we ignore proclaiming it, but in the sense that we have fulfilled what God has asked us, and we lay it aside so someone else can pick it up and carry it on. It implies that God has given us the message of re reconciliation, the gospel, to share until we can no longer carry it, at which point someone else steps in, picks it up, and carries it on. It has the idea of passing on the baton to the next person in a relay race. We have been entrusted with the baton of the gospel until our race is over. Down through the years, the baton has been passed from reconciled to reconciled 
through the ministry and message of the gospel. Another way of thinking about the meaning of entrust is found in the book of Elijah, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2. The story is about Elijah and Elisha. And in this story, God sends a fiery chariot, chariot to take Elijah home to heaven in a whirlwind. And when it's over, Elisha looks around and all he sees is Elijah's coat or mantle laying on the ground. He walks over, he picks up Elijah's mantle and he puts it on and he carries on the prophetic ministry of God. God entrusted Paul with and those with him the message of the gospel and they carried it on until they were gone and somebody else picked it up and they were entrusted with it and it is our turn. We have been entrusted with the gospel. It is our responsibility to pick it up and see that it's passed on. Hand it over to the next generation of those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. I think too often in our personal time with the Lord in his word, words, uh, we have a tendency to skip over the little words. Words that perhaps we view as less significant than others. But often it's the little words that can help produce the greatest insights for us. For instance, note how the prepositions change over the course of the passage. Verse 17, in Christ. Verse 18, through Christ. Verse 19, in Christ. These verses all talk about how reconciliation takes place. It takes place when we are in Christ by faith and it happens through Christ alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7 says, there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, 12, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The restoration of our relationship to God comes through Christ by being in Christ. But the prepositions change beginning in verse 20. They go from in Christ and through Christ to for Christ and on behalf of Christ. And in so doing, Paul has moved from the participants of reconciliation to the proclamation of reconciliation. The proclamation of reconciliation is found in verse 20. Paul writes, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore, on behalf, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul begins with therefore, which implies result. As a result of God giving us the ministry and entrusting us with the message, we become ambassadors for Christ. At its simplest, an ambassador is someone who speaks in place of another. The President of the United States cannot be everywhere at the same time. He cannot be in every country around the world at the same time, so as a result, he sends his representatives to speak in his place. They speak his message and with his authority, and that's what we are for God. 
The middle part of the verse states God making his appeal through us. When we take the gospel to the people in our lives, God is speaking to them and he is using us to do it. What a privilege. We are his representatives to the unbelieving world around us. We have his authority and we have his message. The question is, what are we going to do with them? In the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about believers being the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. What are we going to do with the message that we've been given? Notice also in the verse that Paul says, we. It's plural. Paul wasn't just talking about himself as an ambassador, but every believer with him. And that should strike at the heart of every Christian in this room. It's not just David. It's not just Cammie. It's not just Tyler. It's not just the rest of the staff that are called to be ambassadors. But every person in this room who claims Jesus Christ as their Savior, every believer is an ambassador for Christ. Over time, ambassadors change. Old ones are recalled, new ones are sent out. One day, each of us will be recalled to stand before God to give an account of what we did as his ambassadors. Now, I don't presume to know, presume to know what God will ask any of us at that moment, but it could be something, something as simple as this. Did you deliver my message? How are you and how am I going to answer that question? As ambassadors, we have no authority of our own. We have no message of our own, only that which was given to us by a loving Savior who reconciled us to God. If we don't tell them, who will? At the end of verse 20, we read, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The word implore comes from a legal term that means to plead one's case. That is our responsibility as ambassadors. It is to plead the case for Christ for the people around us. Notice the urgency in Paul's voice. You can almost hear it. We plead with you. We beg you. We implore you. We beseech you. Whatever word your translation uses, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is Paul's version of a 911 call. The unbelieving world just outside our door is in the most dangerous place that they could ever be. And we have the message that will lead them back from the edge of the abyss. One writer put it as succinctly as possible. When pleading the cause of Christ, every day is judgment day for the Apostle Paul. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That brings us to my final point, and that is the price of reconciliation. The one who knew not sin. Earlier I mentioned about my friend and what it cost him 
to be involved in helping a young couple restore their relationship. In today's terms, a couple of hundred dollars. It was a price he was willing to pay, and I have no doubt would do it again in a moment. But what about God? What did our reconciliation cost him? What price was he willing to pay in order to restore our relationship to himself? Verse 21. God made the one who knew not sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The price that God paid for, our, for the restoration of our relationship to himself was the life of his own son. Look how Paul describes Christ in verse 21. The one who knew not sin. The article at the beginning of the phrase is significant. The one, not the two, not a one, which implies somebody else, but the one, Christ, the sinless Son of God, was the only person able to bring about our reconciliation to the Father. And he did it, as Paul says, by becoming sin for us. That is, he paid the price for our sin. He bore the penalty that was rightfully ours on the cross. One author puts it this way, so complete was the identification of the sinless Christ with the sin of the sinner, including its dire guilt and its dread consequence of separation from God that Paul could say profoundly, God caused Christ who knew nothing of sin to be sin for our sake. Peter in a different passage, states it in a slightly different manner. You know that from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. That is the price God was willing to pay for our reconciliation. That was the price that he was willing to pay in order to restore our broken relationship to him. And in so doing, Paul states at the very end of verse 21 that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'll quote the earlier author one more time. The one who was devoid of sin took the place of those who were devoid of righteousness when he bore the consequences of our sin. As a result, they gained the right standing before God that they lacked. The purpose and result of God's causing Christ to be sin was that in Christ, believers might become the righteousness of God, that we might become justified, righteous in his sight. One day when we stand before the Savior, only then will we fully understand the price that God was willing to pay to reconcile, to restore our relationship to himself. By way of application, I would mention these two things. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, we, we, the body of believers gathered together in this room, implore you, be reconciled to God. 
as for those of us in the room whose relationship with God has been restored through that same faith in Christ, I would say only this. As ambassadors for Christ, if we don't tell them, who will? Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would take what we've heard here this morning and apply it to our hearts individually. You know what each of us need. May we be those ambassadors who boldly proclaim the gospel of Christ, that we may implore to people around us to be reconciled to God through our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.